The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Karen Tumulty, national political correspondent here at The Washington Post, and this week, senior editor Mark Fisher and I will be taking over the podcast to bring you this special episode. We're going to be talking about President Trump's first State of the Union address, which will take place on Tuesday, January 30th. You might have a vague memory of having heard a State of the Union address from this president once before, but that was technically an address to a joint session of Congress. You don't get to do the real State of the Union until you've been in office for a year. So what do we expect him to say? What might he ignore? And what does this all mean for Congress and the country? But before we get into that, There's one little interesting historical footnote here. For much of our history, nearly half of our history, the State of the Union was not a speech. It's required by the Constitution, but it was essentially a letter that the president sent to the Congress. Thomas Jefferson decided to give up speech making. It turns out he was terrified of public speaking. And all the way from John Adams to Woodrow Wilson in 1913, no president even set foot in either chamber of Congress. So Woodrow Wilson decided that he was going to take his message directly to the Congress. And the first time he did that, about a month after he was inaugurated, the Washington Post reported that Washington was agog. Here's a little bit from that Washington Post archive story back on April 7, 1913. We wrote, In reverting to the custom, Mr. Wilson will revive a custom which was a storm center in its time and which Thomas Jefferson, the founder of the Democratic Party, abandoned, as he said in a communication to the presiding officer of the two houses, out of, quote, regard to the economy of their time, to their relief from the embarrassment of immediate answers on subjects not yet fully before them, and to benefits thence resulting to public affairs. It was commonly understood at the time, and historians have since accepted it, that President Jefferson's abandonment of the president's speech was part of his scheme for restoring the government to democratic simplicity. But Woodrow Wilson decided differently. It was such a sensation when he showed up to actually deliver a speech to the Congress in person that the Washington Post promised its readers that this would not become a habit. And yet, a habit it has become. And ever since, the State of the Union address has continued to evolve. Ronald Reagan changed it quite elementally when he started inviting high-profile guests to sit up in the gallery so he could point to them, recognize them, and bathe together with them in the applause from both sides of the aisle. The State of the Union has become a magnificent Washington ritual. Most of the members of the Supreme Court are there. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are there. Uh, It's really the one time you have the entire government in one room, uh, with the exception, of course, of the one cabinet secretary who's always left behind in case someone were to take out the Capitol building uh, during the State of Union address. Well, President Trump is certainly no exception to the idea of using the State of Union address to rally the country, to 
challenge Congress uh, and to maybe get a little boost in popularity. What we've seen from President Trump last year in his non-State of the Union address and what we could expect to see this year is continued use of that Reagan ritual of pointing up to the gallery, singling out military heroes so everyone can cheer together, but also making partisan points. Uh, last year he had uh, some victims of crimes committed by illegal immigrants. We can certainly expect to see that sort of thing again. Uh, as, as President Trump loves to both antagonize and in these high-profile occasions, it's the only time we really get to see him trying to bring people together in any way. But the other main function of the State of the Union, and usually the, the purpose to which most, most of the speech is devoted, is in laying out an agenda where the president calls upon Congress to act on this president's priorities. And I've got to tell you, Mark, that in many ways is what I am most interested in hearing from President Trump, because he is not really a detail guy. He has not been somebody to, to lay out fixed policy positions. And it will be an interesting look into just exactly what his administration would like to see happen over the next 12 months. Last year in this speech he to Congress, he gave a kind of a big push against Obamacare and for a big tax cut. Uh, well, he can certainly check that one off. Uh, and he talked a lot about his trillion-dollar infrastructure plan, which we haven't really heard much about this year. It's hard to imagine that he'll be pushing that again this time. And one reason is because he succeeded on his tax cuts. And right now we are looking at projections of enormous deficits. So I think that while people will be listening to see how he would intend to pursue the infrastructure, and it would probably be outside of government spending with a lot of private money, it'll be, I, I think that it's also very likely that he is going to be calling for some kind of major spending cuts because the Republican Party is, after all, supposed to be the deficit hawk party. Last year in his speech to Congress, uh, the president made a last-minute decision to avoid the topic of immigration, which was kind of a surprise. And, of course, immigration has dominated the news throughout his presidency so far, and especially in recent weeks. So the question now is whether he will get into the whole current debate about the Dreamers program uh, and whether he'll make another big push for the wall. It's hard to imagine a Donald Trump speech to Congress without a push for the wall. And they are now saying, the White House is, that they will be releasing a, um, a, a more detailed plan for dealing with the so-called Dreamers, those people who were brought to this country illegally as children who have now been left in a sort of limbo because President Trump um, put an end to President Obama's program called DACA, which would essentially protect these uh, young people from deportation. They are supposed to put out their set of proposals on Monday. This is going to be a real Nixon to China moment for Donald Trump because a lot of people in his party think that allowing anyone to stay in this country who came here illegal under whatever circumstances amounts to amnesty. President Trump has said that he wants to do something for these so-called dreamers. Uh, certainly the public opinion, eight in 10 Americans are very sympathetic to their plight, but bringing along, along his own party is going to be his big challenge here. One thing that uh, would be something of surprise is if the president did 
launch a real attack on the Democrats. We, we certainly saw during the whole discussion about the government shutdown, uh, we got a good taste of Donald Trump's great penchant for uh, going hard against his opponents, and this was the Schumer shutdown uh, as far as the president was concerned. Will he now offer any kind of an olive uh, leaf to uh, the Democrats. It's hard to imagine him doing that in just a few days after that big confrontation, uh, but it's possible. And of course, there will be a section in the speech for foreign policy, for international relations. And the, the question there is going to be whether he will be coming just from this big economic meeting in Davos, where the you know nationalist president of the United States will be speaking to the to to the globalist community, it will be interesting to hear if he has a different kind of message coming back from that. And of course, what he has to say about things like North Korea and the Middle East, if he has any sort of new ideas or just in general, whether he's taking a, a truculent or a, a, you know, or a more calming uh, attitude towards them. And, and that's where it's important to uh, do some reporting, as, as we will in the Post, about who is actually writing this speech. Uh, we saw last year, uh, and in many of the big moments that Donald Trump has had in the presidency so far, we've heard the rhetoric of Stephen Miller, uh, his advisor, who is a uh, who's perhaps greatest passion is the immigration issue and the idea of America first. He's one of the... the true believer uh, nationalists in the White House. Uh, and we've heard that in many of Trump's big speeches. And so even though there will be a, a need or desire to address the issues of North Korea, Iran, China, uh, and of course Russia in this address, we'll also hear that, I think, in the context of that America first approach that Miller likes to tout in all of the president's uh, formal addresses. And also international economics, and uh, certainly this is coming right after the president has imposed some big tariffs on solar panels, on washing machines. Those are the kind of things that do not make his uh, fellow Republicans very happy. The same is true of his his promises to rip up NAFTA. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether he is going to be, you know, all ste steam ahead on that or whether, whether he's going to he's going to suggest that he's he's pulling back a bit on those plans too. I think he'll certainly take a victory lap as well on ISIS. He'll say, he'll say that uh, he's single-handedly responsible for uh, rolling back ISIS's progress, or stopping them cold. Uh, so we'll probably hear some very uh, triumphant rhetoric on that point. So that's true. That's true. So which do you think comes first, his, his triumphant rhetoric on ISIS or his triumphant rhetoric on the stock market? Oh, definitely <laughs> the stock market and the jobs. We'll probably hear a roll call of the companies that are giving bonuses to their employees. I bet we'll even see some of the executives from those employees up in the gallery. Uh, that's probably the point on which the president has uh, the most to tout, and he will do it in a way that probably no other president has. And some of those employees, too, with their, their bonuses, since he loves to to bring them up on stage lately. We, we should go ahead and write the speech. We've right. Got <laughs> you know, last year, he, he surprised a lot of people by having kind of a mix of poetry and hard punches in his rhetoric during the speech to Congress, especially coming after that inaugural address that was so scathingly gloomy and doom-ridden, uh, all about American carnage. He kind of pivoted when it came to talking to Congress and laying out that laundry list of plans and ideas, uh, and it was a rare moment in which we saw Donald Trump reading a speech that 
had at least an attempt at poetry, an attempt at bringing people together. He talked about uh, calling for the renewal of the American spirit, and he asked Congress to dream big, bold, and daring things. I'm not sure that they took him up on that challenge. I'm not sure that he uh, terribly lived up to that either, although he would argue that he has been at least extremely disruptive uh, and turned this giant battleship of a government in a new direction. It's hard to argue, uh, however, that uh, there's been any renewal of the American spirit. Do you think he'll reach out in any way for some level of, of poetry and unity this time? It's interesting because, as you might recall last time around, essentially, you know, the commentariat, all the, the cable TV analysts were so surprised to see President Trump sort of up there sticking to a script, following his teleprompter, and sort of sounding these loftier themes that that I can't count how many times I heard somebody say on cable TV, oh, this is the moment that Donald Trump became president. And then by the next week, he was back to his, his usual tweeting. Um, he's going into this speech with a lot of things hanging in the air around him. There is the Russia investigation and the potential for conflict of interest uh, allegations against him. There are his recent comments about the the types of countries that he would like to, to see immigrants coming from and the types that he would not. There is the entire change of, of the whole context around the subject of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. And He's, I can't imagine that he's going to address these things, but that is nonetheless going to be the backdrop against how, how this speech is seen. Right. It's hard to imagine we would see him talking about the allegations that uh, he had paid off a porn star, for example. Um, but what, you won't be seeing her in the, in the, in the, up in the balcony? Well, you know, <laughs> the Democrats uh, do bring their own guests. Exactly. That's so, true. And, and I think we will see some real drama in terms of uh, who is brought in as guests. We've already seen that some uh, women uh, Democrats in the House have talked about uh, having uh, sexual assault or harassment activists uh, uh, perhaps uh, victims uh, sitting there in the gallery as a, kind of a reminder to the president and as a, a symbol of the national debate we've been having. Uh, I would expect the president to ignore that um, and, and to ignore that issue entirely, uh, but I think he will counter with uh, the kind of guests that we've seen in the past from him, uh, particularly uh, victims of crimes by illegal immigrants. And then there's the, there are a couple of other parts of this ritual that people will be looking at. One is the response from the audience. Um, it, you would recall that that uh, at various points during President Obama's State of the Union speeches, we saw, you know, we saw Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito sitting there and shaking his head over, over the president's comments about the Citizens United decision. Um, we've seen you know, congressmen literally yell out from the audience. Uh, I, I'm wondering if there will be any of those kinds of reactions. And of course, the second is the, is the post-game show, which would be the Democratic response. And what happens in the Capitol is that all the members of Congress rush to a chamber called Statuary Hall, and they all just sort of sound off to the microphones, usually talking points that they have prepared before they ever heard the speech. You know, Mark, State of the Union speeches are, with very few exceptions, not really known for their rhetorical high points. Uh, there are 
by and large, very few truly, truly memorable lines that come out of State of the Union speeches. More than anything else, they really give Americans a roadmap, a way to kind of measure a president throughout the year against his own goals that he has set for himself. And in fact, most State of the Union addresses, if we're going to be completely honest about it, are long, boring, and essentially meaningless. However, uh, there's a lot of, this is all about theater. This is a ritual. And the theater is really important. And as you say, as the president goes through the laundry list of hopes and dreams, we see the response on TV of both parties, the cheers and the jeers. And usually those are kind of good-hearted cheers and jeers. But this year, they may not be quite so good-hearted. And uh, that's where I think we may see some pushback from the Democrats that's not quite in the uh, gentler spirit of past State of the Union addresses. That's where it can get a little touchy uh, and perhaps reveal something about the path forward for this Congress that's going to have to deal in the next year or more uh, with whatever comes out of the special counsel's report on the president's behavior and with the president's excesses in, in uh, on Twitter and, and other venues. Uh, the, this is a Congress that in both parties feels rather distant from this president uh, and wary of him at the least. And so I think we'll see that drama playing out in, uh, in the theater of the Congress. That's about all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to hear more from me, join me on Twitter. I'm at Tumulty. And I'm at M.F. Fisher. That's M.F. and F-I-S-H-E-R. If you like this program, please don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. like can he do that you should check out some of our other great podcasts like constitutional a series about how people have framed and reframed the constitution over time from host lillian cunningham or try cape up with jonathan capehart where jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid you can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at washingtonpost.com podcasts the washington 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 post, post.